0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Acts 5, verses 1 through 6. But a man named, named Animaeus, with his wife Safara, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. This is the word of the Lord. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Um, Please stand for the reading of God's word. First Samuel 6, verse 13, and we'll read through chapter 7, verse 2. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered... The cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Besh Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines sought, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors. That the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortis, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kariath, Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kariath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Ananiab, Ananiab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Cariath jerim a long time passed. Some 20 years, and all the house of Israel, lamented after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come now to, to listen to you again tell us what you are like. Um, to behold you, to be instructed by you, um, to marvel at you, and, and particularly in the light of this text, to tremble before you. So God, may we see, may we marvel, may we tremble, and then, God, oh God, may we live differently in the light of what you've told us and said to us. So God, may the, the, the study of your word and our meditation upon your word be blessed now as we consider who you are and what you're like. In your name we pray, amen. Psalm forty six eight says, Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has wrought in the earth. Um, we sang this song a few weeks ago, and it's an odd line, right? Like If you think about how most people approach the whole topic of Christianity, or how we think about um, meditating on God and what he's like, um, I, I remember the very first time I sang this song, um, and then... Literally had to do a double take and go and look at the text itself. Come behold the works of the Lord. I expected there to be. Look what nice things he has done for us. Look what wonderful things he has done for us. Look at what kind things he has done for us. Like surely those kinds of things we should meditate on. Those kinds of things we should fix our attention on and look at. But that's not what Psalm 46 says. It says, come behold the works of the Lord, particularly what desolations he has wrought in the earth. There is instructions given to us. Should we meditate on the kindnesses of God? Yes, and they're sweet. Should we meditate and think on and look upon um, the, the wonders that he's done, the beauty that he's done? Absolutely. But I do believe in our day and age in particular, um, we as modern Americans tend to avoid considering, beholding, meditating on the fact that many of the works that the Lord has done are desolations, destruction. And it's important, uh, vital even, that we come to terms with the full range of what God has wrought in history, what God has wrought on the earth. It's important at a most basic level because we we want to know the God who's there. We've spoken now for multiple weeks um, with the reality um, coming out of 1 Samuel that um, that, that we must see God as he actually is, Not, not as we want him to be, not as we think he ought to be, not as we think he should be for the sake of our neighbor, because our neighbor will accept this version of God and not this version of God. Um, not the God that makes us feel better or feel the way we're supposed to, we we think we ought to feel, but rather um, we are, are called to be a people who see, who delight in, who behold the glory of the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 3. The glory of the Lord is not just the nice elements of who God is. It's not just the comfortable aspects of who he is. It's not just the the parts of what he's done in history that comfort us and feel nice, but rather we want to see God in his fullness. We want to see him as he is to behold, to revel in, to tremble before the sheer godness of God. That he stands absolutely apart from us. His way of being in the universe is not dependent on us, on what we think he should be like or what we wish he would be like. He just simply and absolutely is. And then the the course of humanity, if you want to know what sanity is, or what it means to, to live well or skillfully in the world, it means to recognize that there is a God who simply and absolutely is and then reordering our lives, reordering our worship, reordering everything, our way of being in the universe and being in the world and being together, reordering all of those things such that they are oriented to and in the light of who God is. And in our day and age, this age of the autonomous self, far too often we remake God in an image that fits the life we want to live, fits the morality we want to believe, fits um, the ethics that we think are right. We, we reorient and reshape The God who is there, rather than submitting to him in joy, submitting to him in fear, submitting to him in love. And so when we come to Psalm 46, which which I'm I'm using as as a place to instruct us on what we ought to look at in this text, the text commends to us this call Behold the works of the Lord what desolations he has wrought on the earth. Now in the light of that, let me just hold out to you. There is actually comfort to be be had in beholding the desolations that God has wrought on the earth. Real comfort. Like when you consider the nature of evil in the world in which we live, the horrific atrocities and injustices. A nice, comfortable, easygoing God is is too weak to contend with the the massive darkness in our world and our history. Um, We need a God who is robust, We need a God who is powerful. We need a God who is to be feared. So the psalmist calls us to behold what desolations he's wrought in the earth. And today we get to behold one. Um, And uh, and so I want us to consider together now as we walk through uh, 1 Samuel 6. I want to remind you where we were last week. Last week... Uh, you, you'll remember that the the Ark of the Covenant, the, present, the 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 marker of the very presence of God is is taken by the Philistines from Israel. Um, Israel suffers a horrific defeat. They, um, they they bring the Ark, thinking that's going to be the. Um, kind of the, the thing that gives them leverage over the Philistines, seeking to use God rather than submitting to God um, and, and, and trusting God and obeying God. Instead, so they, they attempt to use him for their own purposes, um, for their own comfort, for what they want. to um, so they bring the ark out of the battlefield, and, um, and they suffer a devastating loss, and the ark itself is taken. You remember that, the, um, that Eli's family, Eli himself dies. Um, if you'll remember, in you know, a wondrous and humorous turn of phrase, his uh, greatness, his glory, his fatness was so fat that he fell backwards and died. Um, and his sons are killed in the battle, and the ark is taken by the Philistines. Last week we saw um, God himself then goes to war with the Philistines. He doesn't need Israel's and, and an unfaithful Israel to fight on his behalf, um, but rather he goes um, and he first conquers Dagon. Um, Dagon falling, his head breaking, the, the God of the Philistines, his head breaking off and his hands breaking off, um, and then uh, God goes on a tour throughout the Philistine cities um, bringing death and destruction everywhere he goes. So we arrive then in chapter 6, and the Philistines and the, others, um, and the other cities are going, all right, do not bring that here. Do not bring that ark here. We want nothing to do with what's going on in this whole deal. Um, and so they uh, they tried to come up with a plan um, with how do we get the ark out of here? How do we deal with this destruction which seems to be spreading um, from city to city to city? Um, and so in chapter six verses one through nine, um, you have essentially that this repentance of the Philistines, acknowledging that they had abused the Ark of the Covenant, and so they put it on a cart. They come up with a plan. They're going to put it on a cart. Um, They're going to have the cart be led by cows, cows that had never had a yoke on them. Um, They're going to take the calves from these cows, um, and then they're going to direct the cows to head back. They're not even going to direct them. They're just going to put them on a road and see what happens. And if the cows go back to Israel, um, then that's a sign that God was the one causing all this destruction um, and now we can be rid of the ark if the cows kind of wander around or head back home because their calves are home. Um, then we'll know that this had nothing to do with Yahweh. They also are instructed to put on it a guilt offering, completely appropriate. They take a guilt offering um, of golden tumors <laughs> and golden mice. I, I, I don't really I don't like like gold things often in my house, but a gold tumor would be pretty low on the list of things. Um, oh, here's my golden tumor. But um, they send the tubers and the mice, they put it on uh, the cart with the ark. Uh, there, there is, um, uh, basically in this, uh, in, in chapter 6, we get more clarity on the kind of chaos and destruction um, that's unfolding in chapter 5. Uh, we talked about last week, that this is likely bubonic plague, uh, since it's spread through mice um, and uh, when you get it, you get tumors um, um, but it 's also we need to, we need to understand the the breadth of the destruction um, that was coming upon philistine and so uh, the philistines and so um, down in verses seventeen and eighteen, you can see uh, that these tumors represented the five major cities, and then the golden mice represented the fact that that this uh, this plague and this chaos, this destruction wasn 't limited to merely these cities. Um, but was spreading uh, throughout the entirety of the smaller villages, the unwalled cities um, throughout Philistia. So um, they put the ark on the cart, uh, and they put the cart on some cows, and then they set the cows up to see what the cows are going to do. Um, Now what happens is actually a miracle um, and it's a miracle because of a couple of things. One, um, if you know kind of the the layout of the geography of the land, you have um, the, the Philistia sits on the coastal plains uh, next to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Israel sits up in the mountains, um, and uh, and so um, for the, the the cows who have had their calves taken away um, over this way, uh, for the cows then who've never carried an ox cart to then decide to head. Uphill into the mountains um, away from their calves uh, is is remarkable. So um, the ark God's presence comes to return then to Israel. You see that beginning in verse 10 and 11 but then something a pretty profound scene unfolds in verses 12 through 18. It tells us that the rulers um, followed the cart all the way to Israel. So you have um, with kind of what's unfolding uh, with these cows, you have God driving an ox cart, driving his presence back into Israel, leading a parade of the rulers, the conquered rulers of the Philistines in a train behind him. And this was what all of chapter five was fundamentally about God will conquer the nations. So he leads a victory parade back to Israel. And then we get to the text where I want us to focus um, for the rest of our time. The ark comes, the people of this city rejoice. Um, Some background on this city that the ark returns to, of Beth Shemesh. Uh, Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city, so these are, um, the the Levites were the uh, priestly warrior musician class. Um, they, They were the ones that ministered before the Lord, ministered. Um, in the temple, would eventually minister in the temple precincts. Um, and so the the first thing you need to know is, of everything that unfolds here, they should have known better. In fact, if anyone in Israel should have known better, they should have known better. So um, they come to Beth Shemesh, uh, which is actually up a valley from uh, the coast where the Philistines are, um, and it's the first kind of major city that you would, or major town you would come to um, as the... Uh, is coming from the Philistines. And then they do something. They rejoice, and in their rejoicing, they offer cows as a sacrifice in worship that Yahweh was returning. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, that's a great move. I mean, God has returned. It's time to celebrate. The presence of God has come back to his people. He's conquered the Philistines. We're just going to offer whatever worship we can, whatever worship we want. Here's two cows. Let's kill the cows and bring this worship to God because God just wants worship, right? No, Leviticus one tells us that, that you can't offer female animals in sacrifice or in worship to Yahweh. So they first they offer a sacrifice that God had forbidden them from offering. Two, the text tells us that they took down the ark and the box and they set it on a great stone. They set it up in front of all the people. This as well, as we've seen in the book of Numbers and in the Exodus, the ark is not supposed to be prominently displayed among the people. It's always supposed to be covered. It's always supposed to be hidden. Instead, they place it on a rock, a great rock, it says, um, such that all the people can look upon it. This is contrary to what God had commanded. And frankly, it's dangerous to look at the ark. And then we see um, then the men looked at or looked in to the ark. We find in Numbers 4 and 5 that you're not supposed to look upon it and you're absolutely not supposed to look in it. We'll talk about the transition from the Old Covenant to the New in a minute. But in the Old Covenant, the grace, the mercy seat of God was to be veiled. It was to be covered. It wasn't to be looked at. It wasn't to be gawked at. It wasn't to be seen. And so we have the people of God, particularly led by the Levites, um, in Levitical City, the God comes back and dwells among them. He's returned now from defeating the Philistines, and they first offer sacrifices that God had forbidden them from offering to. They prominently display the ark um, like a trophy. I um, mean God has forbidden them from doing that, and the men look into the ark, and they were absolutely and explicitly forbidden from doing that. And so what happens? So look at the text, verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon or looked in the ark of the Lord. He struck, now this is where things get difficult. He struck 70 men of them. If you have the ESV, there should be a little number there that says number one. Does everybody have that? You drop down, you'll see most Hebrew manuscripts struck of the people is is actually not 70 men, but 70 men, 50,000 men in Hebrew. That's, That's how you would say... Fifty thousand, fifty thousand and seventy men. So most Hebrew manuscripts, um, vast majority of translations right in our own day, um, the ESV and then a couple of other ones um, reduce this 50,070 because that seems like a lot, um, like a whole lot, uh, reduce it down to 70 um, um, as though 70 wouldn't be an utter tragedy. Um, but, but most Hebrew manuscripts, and, and I believe... Uh, it's true, it says that over 50,000 men were killed that day. More than the number of Israelites who were killed when they were defeated by the Philistines just a few chapters ago. Come behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has wrought on the earth. The temptation for us is to look at this and say, this just seems, God, like a bit of an overreaction. I mean, okay, so it was cows and not bulls. So they they wanted to look at the ark. They wanted to look at this visible manifestation sign of your presence among the people. Maybe they just wanted to be comforted, like so they, they they offer what what they have in worship to you. Um, they, they look upon the the beautiful, the, the the visible sign of your presence among them. Uh, maybe they're just curious, want to make sure that the Philistines didn't take anything out of the ark. I mean, who knows? Maybe they opened the ark and took some stuff out. Um, like this feels a bit maybe extreme, God. But even in that sentence, we're confronted with our own foolishness. You see, we have in our modern day such a low view of the holiness of God, such a low view of his glory, such a low view of his power. We, we get chummy with God. We, we are far too comfortable with God. We've forgotten to tremble before him. And so we look at these people and say, maybe their heart was right, but so they did a couple of technical things wrong. How, how could God kill them? How could he kill them on this scale? Our view of God has grown far, far too small, far, far too comfortable. Here is a God who is holy, who dwells in unapproachable light, whose judgments and wrath are terrible, whose strength is incomparable. But we've grown far too comfortable in our worship, far too comfortable in our prayers, far too comfortable in our assessment of, of who he is, and therefore far too comfortable in our assessment of our own sin and the sin that, that resides in our world and in our culture. We treat God's judgments as small. We treat God's law as, as negotiable. It's like, eh, how does this go? We do not tremble before um, considering the, the coming, the promised coming wrath of God and judgment of God. And in doing so, we treat as small His grace, His mercy, and His love. When you minimize the judgment of God, when you minimize the demand of Scripture that we fear God and we tremble before Him, you minimize the magnitude of the grace that saves us from that judgment. You minimize the the magnitude of the mercy that redeems us and, and rescues us from His own wrath. The God we worship is not chummy. The God we worship does not um, treat his glory or his majesty or his holiness as a small thing, as a, as a little thing. Like As if you were to come and say, holy, 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 as is said over and over and over again in his presence. He's not constantly going like, oh, oh, it's okay. It's okay, it's okay. This is who he is. He is absolute holiness. He is absolute glory. And he is just and good. And because he is just and good, um, he is the kind of God that if you belittle his holiness, if you treat as small his glory, he will kill you. This is the God of the Bible. There's no other God. If you don't like this God, I mean, it's not kind of a deal like where you swipe. I don't know how you swipe, left or right, but you kind of swipe on to the next God. Let's try this one. Eh, this. One. Eh, this one. Look, this is the only God there is. And if you don't like a God who kills fifty thousand and seventy men, and if you have good manuscript reasons for saying it's 70, great, 70 men. If you don't like the God who will kill people for offering the wrong sacrifice, the sacrifice he told them not to offer, God who will kill people, For looking at or looking on things he's told them not to look at and look on. You don't get to go find another one. You have to come to terms with this God. There is no other. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you um, were brought by somebody and you're like, thanks a lot for bringing me here. Can I just tell you that, like, religion isn't like fast food restaurants, where I like this God because he has good fries, and he's nice, and I like that he has gray hair, or I like this God because he makes good fish sticks, and he has a mustache with no beard, kind of a curly mustache, and I like that better than the gray beard guy because that's too traditional that's that's not how religion works like at the end of the day what we, what we have been called to do as human beings is come to terms with um come to terms with and and live in the light of of who God is who the God who is there is like he's not responding kind of taking like a, there's not like a comments card box in the back of our sanctuary where you can kind of drop a comment card for God and tell him, hey like it's a little, little, rough there. I, I would, I would recommend not killing fifty thousand people. Um, or I, I wish you were a little bit. If, if, you, if you had kind of a, a more grandfatherly demeanor or more like brotherly demeanor. Like, like, there's no comment box where God's kind of waiting for you to comment. There, just simply and absolutely a God who is, who then tells us graciously. I mean, it's just sheer grace that he speaks to us, that he gives us his law, Um, and not just gives us his law, but but gives us his law, and then knowing we can't keep his law, um, sends Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Um, So he instructs us on how we ought to live in the world, um, and and we live in a world that that is simply and absolutely subject to the God who is there. So, if you're here today and you hear this story and you just say, I don't like it, here's the reality. In a very real sense, God doesn't care. He doesn't care if you don't like it, He's not second guessing Himself. He's not going, maybe I shouldn't have done that. That would probably be offensive to modern American minds and dispositions. The glory and the grace is not that he had just. to to our tastes or that he adjusts to uh, the particular aesthetics or judgments we think he ought to execute. The glory and the grace is that he makes himself known to us and by his spirit and through the work of Jesus calls us to worship him and to see him and to be overjoyed as we behold what he is actually like because here's the thing, you were made by this God, not another God, not a God you would prefer, you were made by this God to worship Worship him, to know him, to marvel at him, to tremble in his presence, to to glory in his grace. But it was this God, not any other God, you were made to see this one, to know this one, to worship this one, and to worship him in the exact ways that he commands you to worship him. Come, behold the works of the Lord the desolations he has wrought on the earth. This is not a harsh command from the psalmist. It is a gracious one, a kindness. He is a merciful God who reveals himself to us. In response to this judgment, the people say "Thing." The men of Beth Shemesh, the ones who are left, say, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up away from us? It reminds us of the story of Jesus when he comes and he casts out the demon. The demon that goes into the pigs and the pigs race off and die in the sea. Um, The men of the city come and say, Go away from us. They plead with him get away from us. They saw in Jesus this God, a holy God, a glorious God, a good God, but they saw a holy God that they didn't know what to do with. And I want to just say this to you. I don't know where you are struggling uh, maybe you're here today and you're a non Christian. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian who just needs renewal and revival. Can I just tell you something? This is the only place that renewal can begin. This is, quite frankly, non Christian. This is actually where salvation begins. It doesn't begin like all of the self-help models and books would tell you, um, and, and God bless James uh, Jordan Peterson, it doesn't begin the, same, the, the way that Jordan Peterson says it begins. It doesn't begin by you kind of pulling yourself by, by your bootstraps and getting really diligent about making your bed every day. No, this is the only place it begins. It begins by beholding and seeing a God that you cannot stand before. It begins not with moral self-effort. It begins not with good feelings. It begins by beholding God as He is in His holiness and His glory and falling on your face and saying, who can stand? This is the beginning of the gospel and it's what these men say. So they drive the ark away from them. They send it up actually to a Gentile city um, at Kareath Jerim. <coughs> this is a, a Gentile city with some Jews in it, uh, but it's, it's no longer in the land of Israel. It stays there. They appoint a man named Eleazar to take care of the ark, to guard the ark. And it stays there for a long time for 20 years. God has given us so far in these six chapters three seeds that point forward to the, the glorious thing that he's building. The the, the theme that kind of arises uh, in, in these first chapters of Samuel um, is a story of, of a people in rebellion against God who do not love God, who do not worship God. Their whole mechanism of worship through Eli and his sons has been Cloaked in darkness and wickedness and sin and idolatry. Um, and, and then God comes and, and, and he gives us three seeds that are planted in the midst of kind of continuing upheaval. So if you go through the first six chapters uh, of 1 Samuel um, and you're just looking at it historically, maybe trying to take a, a historian's eye at kind of what unfolds in these chapters, um, there's almost nothing here to say that things are, go- are about to get really, really good in Israel. Right, like it just looks bad, and then really bad, and then really, really, really bad. Like just keeps getting worse. You have sinful conditions that we kind of arrive at in First Samuel one and two, um, and then you have their 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 defeat at the hand of the Philistines, and then you think, oh, maybe this is some sort of renewal. They bring God and the Ark, kind of acknowledging. God's presence over them into the battlefield. And then the ark is taken and um, the whole priestly house is killed um, and, and the people of Israel are massacred. Um, and then, um, then you think you might have kind of a turn in six, like maybe this is God starting to do something good in Israel um, and because of God goes from Philistine city to Philistine city, creating chaos and death, conquering the enemies of Israel, um, conquering their oppressors um, who've oppressed them. Um, and And then God comes back Israel and you think, maybe this is the renewal. Maybe this is finally God kind of turning the corner um, in the establishment of his kingdom and the building of this temple and the establishment of the line of David and ultimately of Jesus our Messiah and King. And what what happens right when you think we've turned the corner? 50,000 people get killed because they offered the wrong sacrifice and they looked at the ark. Yet there's three seeds planted in the midst of that soil. That that dark, destructive soil. Remember Hannah's prayer and then Hannah's song. God would put down the proud and raise up the weak, the humble. And a son is born. Remember in chapter three, it opens by telling us that the word of the Lord was sparse in that day. Nobody seen God. And, and then it ends by saying, The Lord appeared again at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Love that text. God had not been seen, he hadn't been heard from. And then right there, before all of this chaos just seems to multiply. You get this, just this seed planted. God appeared. By the word of the Lord, the word comes again, and God begins to speak. And I believe right here in verse 20, we have the third seed. Men who see the judgments of God, they see horror of his wrath. And they say the only thing that human beings can say in the face of the holiness of God, "Who can stand before this holy God?" I would plead with you to know this. No one can stand before him. He is holy. Righteous, and good, and glorious. And no one can stand on their own in his presence. No one but Jesus. I want to end by just observing one pretty remarkable thing. Um, if you were to look upon the ark, to look at the ark was to look primarily at the mercy seat of the ark. Um, the ark was built in such a way that the top of the um, top of the ark was called the mercy seat. It was a place um, where blood would be sprinkled um, every year as a, um, a reminder to God um, of his covenant promises to forgive their sin in the light of the sacrifices. So the um, sacrifice of atonement would be made and the blood would be thrown upon the top of the ark um, by the high priest. Um, And that blood being sprinkled on the top of the ark um, was a marker, It was a reminder to the holy God, the the righteous God, the God who in his holiness um, uh, is bound to judge sin, is bound to bring his wrath and his judgment against all rebellion against him. And so um, every single year, um, blood was sprinkled again on the top of the ark, on the mercy seat, um, as a reminder um, before Israel of their sin and a reminder to God of his covenant, promises to forgive their sins. As, again, as 1 John says, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. And so for these men to look upon the mercy seat, the thing that no one but the high priest was to look upon um, was to... Uh, to, to, to break what was, was held in the Old Covenant. A veil was to remain constantly. Um, um, as Israel tried to look at and, and, and understand... Uh, where God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. Um, there was always a veil between them and, and, and the manifestation of God's mercy, um, the, the, the keeping of all of God's covenant promises and the coming of Jesus. And, and so um, that's where this, this language of the veil, the um, veil being torn at the death of Jesus, um, there was always something covering or, or hiding um, where the glory and the promises of God were headed. And then there's this wonderful text in 2 Corinthians um, where Paul's kind of talking about this dynamic um, of the old covenant and the new covenant um, and the fact that there was a veil that remained between the people of Israel um, and the glory that was to come. And he says that and when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, it's lifted, it's taken away. Um, and so in the old covenant, the reality was is you cannot look upon um, the mercy seat of God, and then something has changed for us, by the way. And it's not that God's less holy, it's not that God has suddenly become really easygoing and kind of comfortable to be with. No, the, the change has been you must look upon the mercy seat of God. In the old covenant, you're forbidden from seeing it. In the new covenant, Christ is that mercy seat. Romans 3 describes, um, in, in the language, the exact language of the mercy seat of God on the ark. The propitiation. That, that is what this seat is called. And Jesus is put forward as the propitiation in his blood. So here's where we end. God has instructed us in how to worship him. That no one can stand on their own. That no one can just presume upon God. But God has instructed us in the worship that he calls um, for from us. And he is holy and he is righteous and he is terrible in his judgments. And he is absolutely good. And here's the glorious fulfillment in God's instructions to us in worship. You must look to Christ. Christ. You must see the mercy seat of God and you must never stop fixing your gaze in song, in prayer, in the word. Never um, never alter your gaze and turn from left or right, but rather fix your gaze upon the work of Jesus. If you want to know who can stand before this holy God, only Jesus and only those who look to him. So may you look to Christ and as we come to this table, to this bread and this wine, may we again in the bread and the wine look upon the mercy seat of God in the coming of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, and in in the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray and prepare for communion.